Today's episode is brought to you by Technically Speaking, an Intel podcast. When you think about the future, what kind of technology do you envision? Whatever the future holds, artificial intelligence will undoubtedly be at the heart of it all. Join Graham Class as he hosts Season 2 of Technically Speaking, an Intel podcast, and hear from the minds transforming healthcare, retail, entertainment, personal computing, and more with the help of AI. Tune in every other Tuesday and explore the latest technology that's changing our world today and creating a more accessible tomorrow. Listen to Technically Speaking, an Intel podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Today's episode is brought to you by Visible. The future of wireless is here, and it's transparent. Switch to Visible, the wireless company that makes wireless visible. Get a one-line plan with unlimited 5G data powered by Verizon, just $25 a month, every month, taxes and fees included. No hidden fees, no surprises, no, really. What are you waiting for? Get with the times and switch to Visible at Visible.com. Monthly rate on the Visible plan for data management practices and additional terms, visit Visible.com. Are you looking for the perfect move-in ready home this spring season? Now's the time to buy at Fisher Homes. For a limited time only, enjoy below market interest rates starting at 5.375% APR, 6.139% APR. With these exclusive lower rates, you can save hundreds on a move-in ready home and start enjoying the benefits of home ownership even faster. Schedule your personal tour with one of our new home specialists at fisherhomes.com and make this spring the season you find your perfect home sweet home. Financing provided by Victory Mortgage, LLC, NMLS 461249, Equal Housing Lender. My heart is made a necromancer's glass, where homeless forms and exile phantoms teem, where faces of forgotten sorrows gleam and dead despairs archaic peer and pass. Gray longings of some weary heart that was possess me, and the multiple supreme, unwildered hope and star-emblazoned dream of questing armies, ancient queen and lass, risen vampire-like from out the wormy mold, deep in the magic mirror of my heart, behold their perish beauty and depart. And now from black aphelion far and cold, swimming in deathly light on charnel skies, the enormous ghosts of bygone worlds arise. Welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind, a production of iHeartRadio. Hey, welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind. My name is Robert Lamb. And I am Joe McCormick. And to continue a Stuff to Blow Your Mind tradition, we are disregarding the traditional Gregorian calendar. And uh, we have decided that October begins in late September. It often does for us. Uh, if, if you don't know, we do spooky content all October. And today is the first day of that month-long festival. That's right. Uh, I mean, yeah, Halloween has already begun. There, there's no doubt about it. Uh, I'm going to a haunted house tomorrow night. So it's, 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 it's begun. It has begun. And so we kicked off this episode. This is going to be the first of, I believe, two episodes. We'll see how it goes regarding necromancy. Uh, that was a reading from the early 20th century poem, Necromancy, by the weird fiction, horror, and fantasy writer Clark Ashton Smith. Now, I actually suggested this topic because I became uh, interested in it when we were doing an episode a while back. I think it was our series on uh, on oil and water. Uh, we, we were mainly focusing there on legends about how if you pour oil in water, it will settle the waves and how to some extent that is actually scientifically true. Uh, so uh, if you haven't heard that series, go back and listen to it. It'll be a treat. 
But in that series, I did end up going on a large digression about necromancy in the Hebrew Bible. And uh, it got me thinking about the idea that necromancy, when people use that word today, they're almost always talking about a sort of Dungeons and Dragons sorcerer that raises the dead and commands them as a sort of uh, uh, shambling thrall of some sort. Whereas in the traditional understanding, necromancy means something different and is usually a, a reference to the practice of divination with the help of the dead, consulting the dead for information. And that sort of gap in meanings between the popular understanding and the original understanding uh, I thought was very interesting and maybe worth plowing into the history a bit. Yeah, yeah, because if you're familiar with Dungeons and Dragons necromancers, you know that within Dungeons and Dragons, this is a magic practitioner who specializes in spells of the necromancy spell class. So things like animate dead, finger of death, chill touch, that sort of thing. Um, you know, lots of undead-ish magical spells and abilities. And the presentation of necromancers in D&D has, of course, influenced tons of fantasy and sci-fi properties over the years. So there's this strong pop culture echo of the dead-raising necromancer. Now, I think aligning with the traditional understanding of necromancy, you do have a spell in Dungeons and Dragons, which is speak with dead, which is almost always used for necromancy purposes. It's like you need to get some information out of this corpse. And despite the evil connotations of necromancy in general, uh, I think anybody can use this spell. Like uh, in, in Baldur's Gate, I have my very lawful good wizard uh, speaking with dead most of the time. Yeah, I think one of the interesting things to keep in mind about necromancy, and we'll probably get into this some more, is that this idea of like speaking with the the dead, um, you know, it's like the the medieval uh, Christian experience uh, uh, and, and prohibition against this sort of thing, like kind of casts a long shadow, where uh, you know this idea that you shouldn't attempt to speak with the dead, you don't know what will speak back, because speaking with the dead is not possible by the rules and laws of God as as uh, as they understood it uh, to be, and uh, and therefore you know it was just dangerous to even think about such a thing. Um, so that that'll be worth keeping keeping in mind here. But uh, the, the the Dungeons and Dragons idea of the necromancer, of course, draws on various traditions as well, including the discussion of uh, necromancers and necromancy and pre-existing fantasy and weird fiction, including that of Clark Ashton Smith, uh, whose uh, poem started off this episode. For instance, he had a story titled The Empire of the Necromancers from uh, 1932 that involved a, a pair of kind of like rogue necromancers who get uh, exiled from one kingdom. And so they, they go into this uh, kingdom of, uh, of this deceased kingdom of tombs and start raising up people to serve as their servants. And of course, they end up rising against them, that sort of thing. Um, <laughs> it, it's kind of a buddy comedy. No, no, it's no. Um, it's not, not no. You're not. You don't really sympathize with these necromancers. They're awful, uh, and you're you're rooting for the dead to overcome them the whole time, and so it's satisfying when they do. Ah. It's also worth noting that J.R.R. Tolkien's The Hobbit uh, features whispers of the mysterious necromancer in Mirkwood. I think little is made out of this in the text, but I think we're to understand that this is an incarnation of the Dark Lord Sauron prior to his return to Mordor and his final incarnation as the all-seeing eye um, as to what sort of literal necromancy he might be up to in Mirkwood. I don't, I don't know that we have a clear answer on that. That's a good question. I don't know if Sauron would be raising the dead to obtain information or for divinatory purposes. I, I think he mainly does go more in the D&D &D direction of like he, he raises uh, 
what are they called? You know, the ring wraiths, I guess. Those are mm-hmm. those are undead uh, wraiths or revenants of some sort. They are dead kings who are brought back to do his bidding. Yeah, yeah. So that's that's necromancy in the raising the dead sense. But in terms of the, the speaking with the dead, uh, I don't know that he has much to talk about with them. Except like, yeah, do as I command you. Kneel before yeah. Zod. Yeah. <laughs> so um, we're going to be talking about several different angles regarding necromancy here. Uh, but... Uh, one article that I found uh, pretty insightful in places was this um, paper by the, the, the Czech academic uh, Andrzej Kapkar titled The Origins of Necromancy or How We Learn to Speak to the Dead. And uh, I, I thought this was pretty insightful. He points out that the ultimate roots of necromancy, necromancy can be found in the socioeconomic impact of human death on individuals and communities, especially small communities. And uh, this is one of those things that I I think can seem like an outrageous overstatement of the obvious at first. But as social animals, a great deal depends on the social bonds created and nurtured by individuals within a group. And when an individual dies, it potentially throws all of that into disarray unless the bonds they establish in life can be carried on after their death by one method or the other. So it becomes important to retain bonds of some sort with one's ancestors, which is not necessarily necromancy, obviously, uh, and even, you know, to seek their guidance, which is more directly what we might think of as necromancy, but again, not necessarily necromancy, which which is, is going to be a distinction we'll come back to again and again. This is interesting. It gets into something I think I'm going to talk about more in part two than in this part, but about how some ancient descriptions of alleged necromancy practices might actually be sort of... Um, uh, external misunderstandings of uh, of essentially ancestor cult practices that mm-hmm. what is actually sort of the care of one's dead ancestors as a, as a sort of uh, god of sorts is misinterpreted by uh, people who don't practice the same thing with regard to their own ancestors as an attempt to get information or power from the dead. Yeah, I think there's a lot of that going on. Um, we'll get into some uh, Chinese sources here in a bit. And like the word necromancer pops up a lot in translations of Chinese sources. And and sometimes, um, really, it seems like a lot of the time, necromancer is used sort of interchangeably, an elegant variation for just wizard, um, mm. you know, and um, which can make searching for, for information uh, a, a little bit uh, tricky at times uh, because you'll see the word necromancer, but they're not really talking about anything regarding necromancy specifically. And yeah, and again, to your point, you end up asking questions like, well, what's the difference between a spirit medium and a necromancer? What's the difference between uh, veneration of ancestors and necromancy? Uh, you could say it's just a personal branding issue, or it depends on which side you're standing on. If you're on the outside of that culture, particularly with a uh, European, Western European background, uh, again, kind of descended from this um, this culture in which the idea of speaking to the dead uh, was, you know, was 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 evil or dark in some fashion, then it's easy to level the word necromancer, which you know drips a certain amount of uh, of dread. Yeah, I think another important thing to understand is that, especially in the Christian context, but really I think any religious context that 
enforces a kind of uh, priesthood-based orthodoxy. There is usually going to be more restrictions on individual practice of magic, uh, and necromancy would be one form of that. And, you know, there are other cultural contexts where it's more of a kind of magical or ritual free-for-all, and uh, people engage in all different kinds of practices to gain information or blessing, and it's uh, not condemned by the, the religious institutions. Right, right. Well, anyway, to go back to Kapgar here, um, according to him, in broad strokes, necromancy covers anything that involves divination practices that involve the spirits of the dead. And uh, I, I should also stress that I think he's using the term divination broadly here as well, as its textbook def definition doesn't necessarily mean knowledge about the future, but can also refer to the access of hidden knowledge, you know, the interpretation of omens and so forth. So anytime you're trying to find something out by speaking with a spirit of a dead person, then that is, broadly speaking, necromancy. Yeah, that's my understanding, too, especially of how it's used in the academic literature as opposed to the, the popular fantasy. Yeah. Now, of course, necromancy is just a word, and uh, he also breaks down the origins of the word uh, as follows. So it's a 17th century English derivation of the Italian word necromancia, uh, which means black magic, which comes from the Latin word uh, necromantia, meaning the same thing. The Latin here borrows from the pre-classical Greek word uh, necromantia. Uh, and so we have necros meaning dead or corpse and mantia meaning divination. So we're talking about corpse divination or divination of the dead. And that's why you can see the same suffix mancy used in other forms of div divination like uh, selenomancy, you know, divination mm -hmm. by looking at the moon and so forth. Yeah. And he cites the first use of the word necromancy in this context to um, Oregon of Alexandria from 3rd century CE. Uh, he is saying the following, attributing it to Simon the Magus. Quote, by means of ineffable adjuration, I called up the soul of an immaculate boy who had been put to a violent death and caused it to stand by me, and by its means whatever I commanded is effected. And the soul freed from the body possesses the faculty of foreknowledge, whence it is called forth for necromancy. This particular uh, quote, it's a, from the Recognitions of Clement, and it looks like it's from, uh, this is mentioned in a book that he cites uh, from 1995 by Robertson Donaldson. Mm, okay. Uh, but uh, I guess what it's important to drive home, like it's kind of like three different levels of ta talking about necromancy. It's like earliest, uh, if you're looking for like the roots of it, like how far back can you go and find something that is described with the word necromancy or necromancer? How far back can you go to something that is being described that matches uh, these prerequisites for necromancy. And then ultimately, and we'll maybe get into this later, like what are some things in the archaeological record that you can point to and say, well, that might be something like necromancy. That might be uh, an example of some sort of practice that involved seeking guidance or wisdom from the dead. Ah, yes, because there are a lot of artifacts that without literary sources to to really explain what was done with them, you can't be sure. But they're, they're suggestive of possible practices uh, having to do with with consulting the dead. Yeah. Shout out to Astapro for sponsoring this episode and providing us with free samples. 
Rob, as the uh, the local host with allergies here, they sent you some of their nasal spray to treat your allergies. What was your experience like? Yeah, that's right. I always wrestle with the pollen a bit when it rolls in during the spring. So they sent me the little uh, nasal spray. I tried out the product and yeah, it sure did help me get on top of my symptoms for the day. And it's so fast acting, uh, it was already kicking in before I left the house. Astapro is a first-of-its-kind nasal allergy spray. It's the fastest 24-hour over-the-counter allergy spray. It starts working in 30 minutes, while other allergy sprays take hours. Astapro is the first and only 24-hour steroid-free allergy spray. Astapro delivers full prescription-strength indoor and outdoor allergy relief from nasal congestion, runny and itchy nose, and sneezing. Get fast-acting nasal allergy symptom relief with Astapro. Go to AstaproAllergy.com for a discount so you can get Astapro and go today. A-S-T-E-P-R-O Allergy.com. Astapro and go. Use this directed for relief of nasal congestion, runny nose, sneezing, and itchy nose due to allergies. Today's episode is brought to you by eBay. eBay Motors is here for the ride. Remember when you first saw the potential? And then, through some elbow grease, fresh installs, and a whole lot of love, you transformed 100,000 miles in a body full of rust into a drive that's all your own. Look to your left. Look to your right. It's official. No one's got a ride like this. There's nothing else that sounds like, feels like, or looks like the set of wheels in your garage. With over 122 million parts, you can make sure your number one ride or die stays running smoothly so there's no limit to how far you can take it. Brake kits, turbochargers, engines, exhaust kits, roof racks, LED headlights, bumpers, whatever your baby needs, eBay Motors has it. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, it's guaranteed to fit your ride the first time, every time, or your money back. Plus, at these prices, well, you're burning rubber, not cash. Keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only. Exclusions apply. Xfinity has free premium networks for everyone this month, no matter what kind of entertainment you love. Addicted to true crime? Catch killer cases and more spine-tingling shows on A&E Crime Central. Crave adventure? Explore Asian action movies on Hayah. Searching for something extreme? Check out skating, snowboarding, and more on Fuel TV Plus, the global home of action sports. And find crowd-pleasing bops on iHeartRadio's Hit Nation playlist. There's new free shows and movies to love every week. Say free this week in your Xfinity voice remote. Now, in this series, we're going to talk about examples of necromancy or alleged necromancy in uh, different times and places throughout history. Uh, let's see. I, I had some stuff today about necromancy in ancient Mesopotamia. And Rob, I know you had some stuff about in, in China. Do you want to do China first? Sure. Yeah. I mean, it is um, Autumn Moon Festival and everything. So uh, maybe we'll ah. start with a, a Chinese example. So uh, I, I guess the first thing to, to point out is that we should remind ourselves of the importance of ancestor veneration in Chinese traditions. And it, this is by no means unique to just Chinese traditions, uh, but um, it is incredibly important. And I suppose we should also remind ourselves that modern and ancient people alike are capable of having multiple, even conflicting ideas concerning the dead and the possibility of an afterlife. Um, so this may, this may be important later on, because again, in the same way that, that you can have someone who doesn't logically believe in ghosts, that doesn't logically believe you can 
contact the spirit world. But that same individual, you know, given certain emotional stresses, may seek out a medium and try and find some solace there, that sort of thing. Or we can just sort of casually have multiple ideas about the afterlife. Yeah. And well, while you're emphasizing the multiple ideas that can exist within a single person, of course, it's even more true of a populace across time. Like, you know, asking like, what did ancient Chinese people or what did ancient Mesopotamian people think about what happens after death is kind of like asking, what do Americans think about what happens after death? I mean, you could represent you you can explain views that are commonly found, that some views are going to be much more frequently uh, believed than others, but there, there's no single answer to that. There are a range of beliefs. And so if you talk in generalities, you can only talk based on the sources you have. And, uh, and even then, that's probably only going to be talking at best about like majorities of people or some, some commonly held ideas, not about uh, what everyone believed all the time. That's right. Yeah, we're dealing with a great deal of geography, culture, and time when talking about um, you know, like Chinese, even ancient Chinese um, concepts regarding the, the dead. Uh, but I think it's safe to say a certain amount of guidance by and communication with is baked into the whole concept, though the degree to which this, is, this angle is emphasized is going to vary. Uh, so veneration of ancestors does not equal necromancy. But that doesn't mean there aren't some comparisons you could make. And more to the point, it doesn't mean that there are not examples of wizards in Chinese mythology and tradition who are more expressly described as expert specialists with an ability to communicate with or facilitate communication with the dead. And by that, you could classify them as, quote unquote, necromancers. Though, again, that doesn't stop so many texts from describing wizards as necromancers, even though they're not necessarily doing anything that is necromantic. Well, yeah. And uh, to people who listen to us often, this should be obvious, but maybe it's worth saying that when we use the term necromancer, we are not applying any like more uh, attaching any moral ideas to that. It just means right. literally somebody who's getting information from the dead. Uh, right. Not not that that's good or bad. Whatever older sources might be likely to, I don't know, have, have some kind of stink on the idea. Yeah, yeah. Um, Now, I want to stress that, uh, as always, my grasp of Mandarin is very limited and depends on various references and tools. But it's my understanding that there is no one word in Mandarin that expressly denotes necromancy in the same way that our word necromancy does. Uh, But in Chinese tradition, the specialist you would seek out for any of your, like, strong necromantic needs would be a feng shi, uh, which essentially translates to method master. Uh, You'll also see this translated as alchemist, wizard, or basically any specialist magic user terminology you can think of, including but not limited to necromancer. Again, this is the the elegant variation in play here. Though, again, there are some cases where you have one of these method masters, one of these feng shi, who is doing something that is very necromantic in nature. Um, And so I'd, I'd like to discuss one in particular. Okay. All right, this is going to take us uh, to the Han Dynasty, um, so 2nd century BCE. Um, this would have been the rule of Emperor Wu of Han. Uh, more than one wizard and immortalist served this guy. He, he, especially later in life, had a fondness for um, surrounding himself with, um, with various uh, magicians and magic users, uh, seeking things from them like uh, immortality. Um, and, um, and I have also read that late in life, he also became increasingly paranoid, um, about plots against him, 
Um, and uh, I think some of these were inspired by dreams. And so at the same time that he was, you know, leaning into uh, the, the talents of magicians to help protect him, he also was very much uh, supporting witchcraft persecution of the day and harsh penalties against um, alleged magic users. Mm. But, for instance, um, uh, one of the Feng Shis that worked for him was Li Xiaoyun, who claimed to be a 70-year-old immortal and preached immortality via diet and commitment to the kitchen god, um, though he did die. Uh, so <laughs> it, it, maybe there were some holes in the plan. Uh, but then there was another individual, a Feng Shi known as Xiao Wing, and this apparently can be translated as young geezer. Uh, <laughs> it basically means like young old person. Wait, does that mean he was like an old person who was young at heart or a young person who was old at heart? Um, that's a good question because the, <laughs> the other guy, uh, Li Xiaoyun, like the whole thing is like he was young, but he claimed to be 70. He was like, look at me. Look how young I look. This is uh. because I have secrets I can I can teach you. Um, so I'm not sure uh, if young geezer here <laughs> was old at heart or old in body. Um, like maybe he's young at heart and old in body, you know? But where it gets interesting with this particular um, practitioner, with Xiao Wing, is that uh, there, are, there are a lot of sources that discuss his alleged use of some sort of necromancy and potentially shadow puppetry. Oh, you mean not separately, but together? Together, yes. So shadow puppetry has a very long history in China and likely originated there and or in India in the first millennium BCE. I know there are a lot of a uh, lot of, of, of articles out there and sources about like where shadow puppetry came from. And you have some very rich traditions of shadow puppetry in various cultures uh, throughout um, uh, Asia and the Middle East. Uh, so, you know, no matter where it began, like it has very distinct forms all over the place. Mm -hmm. um, but one popular but academically controversial story holds that its roots are shamanistic and key to our discussion here, necromantic. OK, give me that controversial story. <laughs> all right. So the story here uh, uh, that is often ruminated on is that uh, Emperor Wu had a uh, had a favorite uh, consort or concubine by the name of Lady Lee. Uh, she was his, his absolute favorite, and she, um, she began to, to grow rather ill and, uh, and eventually died. Towards the end of her life, she began to prohibit him from seeing her face and then ultimately from hearing her voice, and then she dies. And Xiao Wing offers the emperor a chance to speak with her again, to like be in her presence again. Um, he... Uh, the, the story is that he brings the emperor into this uh, kind of chamber and there's this fabulous silk screen. Offerings are placed for the spirits. Uh, there's incense burning. Uh, you know, the, 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 there's a you know, manipulation of light and shadow. And he is able to summon her spirit on the other side of the screen. And there is something shade-like or shadow-like in her appearance. Ah, that's interesting because I wonder if that kind of thing should meet our definition of necromancy or not. Is is just wanting to see and interact with someone again because you miss them a form of necromancy? Is that is that getting information from them? Not not in the way I would normally think of. Well, in in some of these tales, apparently, like first of all, he's completely won over by this. He's mm -hmm. 
he's like, oh my goodness, it is her. And uh, like, he's so just overcome by the sensation that she is there again on the other side of the screen, that he composes a poem. And uh, I believe there are other accounts that say that like he would sit there for hours talking to her, that sort of thing. Mm -hmm. Uh, So in those cases, you could, I guess you could make an argument. Well, yeah, this is, uh, the the, um, um, uh, the necromancer here is uh, is allowing for some sort of communication with the dead, but not everybody is crazy about this story, and there are a lot of different interpretations and misinterpretations of this, especially apparently when you get into some like Western uh, analysis of it, where you know things get crisscrossed in translation and so forth. Mm. I was looking at a book called Chinese Shadow Theater: History, Popular Religion, and Women Warriors by Fan Pin Li Chen. Um, and the author here points out that many critic, critics find it ridiculous to believe that this court magician, first of all, invented shadow puppetry and then used it to fool the emperor into thinking that this is the ghost of his favorite concubine. Um, like that, that just seems like, like quite a stunt to pull off, even if you're a, a particular daring and charismatic wizard. I mean, on one hand, yes, but then... I don't know, by modern analogy, I mean, I think that there are people who claim to have uh, spirit medium powers and stuff who perform tricks like this on people in the modern world all the time. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I think that's an important thing to keep in mind. Um, uh, so, so, yeah, first of all, we should not think it impossible that even a very powerful and a very intelligent individual could not be um, convinced that there there's something going on here. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, Chen also points out some other facts that I think help us sort of circle the, the idea here. Um, so there's the idea that, first of all, that Wu eventually finds out about the deception and has this would-be necromancer quietly executed, kind of out of, out of embarrassment. Like he doesn't want to make a big deal out of it because he feels you know like he has been duped, uh, but he definitely is going to have that wizard killed. Um, there's also... Um, this tidbit that Sha Wing had convincingly summoned another consort spirit through the use of shadows and that shadow screens and incense were to some extent associated with this sort of work. So there's maybe some sort of pre-existing uh, formula or, um, or script for this. So it's not just coming out of nowhere. Uh, there's also a Lang Dynasty author that apparently submitted that Sha Wing used something other than traditional three-dimensional puppets or two-dimensional shadow puppets and that, quote, the necromancer had a statue carved out of magic stone in the likeness of the consort. Hmm. Now, I'm not arguing in favor of magic stone per se, but that makes you think of something perhaps a little bit different, maybe, you know, higher production values um, or out of the ordinary compared with what, um, you know, they might have been used to, to some sort of like pre-existing shadow play, shadow puppetry performance. Mm Mm-hmm. While the author is doubtful that any of this suggests a shamanistic origin for shadow puppetry, so any idea that like shadow puppetry originates as kind of a, um, you know, a shamanistic or religious rite of some sort, uh, authors, the author cites the importance of Han period belief that certain feng shi could summon the souls or shadows of the deceased through special rites, uh, which again, you know, a pre-existing script, a pre-existing idea that this is the kind of thing that certain magicians can do. Mm-hmm. 
And the, the story also yeah, seems to have been somewhat corrupted in Western retellings, forging a link between seance and shadow puppetry when, if I'm understanding Chen correctly on this, it's more proper to think of this as a tale of a would-be necromancer using shadow effects to dupe the emperor into thinking he has been visited by the spirits of the dead. You know, this is kind of a familiar trope. Uh, uh, throughout the world, the idea of like the dangerous position held by a king's magical advisors. You know, you have to walk that fine line uh, because if you are, uh, if, if they see through what you're doing, uh, you're obviously not going to stick around court very long. Yeah. And I don't know, thinking more about the idea that uh, could a, could a clever magician really trick a king like this? I think Maybe that also assumes that the king would be more likely suspicious or skeptical than a person might naturally be if they do desperately want to see someone again. I mean, if you if someone you love has died and you want to see them again, you might not be very, uh, uh, you know, looking for holes to pick in, in the experience of seeing them once again. You might be quite ready to believe. Yeah, yeah. I think that's important to keep in mind. Um, and I, I think it's it's also interesting to contemplate this account. Uh, especially given that, you know, first of all, it's a, it's occurrence in a culture that is traditionally more aligned with the idea of communication with spirits of the, of the deceased. Uh, again, as opposed to Christian European culture in which the idea of speaking with the dead is seen as impossible and dangerous. You know, you're just going to get a demon on the other line anyway, so don't even attempt it. And, uh, you know, perhaps it also speaks to a sort of communion with the dead that goes beyond anything achievable via veneration rites and even medium traditions. You know, the idea that it's it's not just about like honoring her and knowing that she's out there somewhere, but it's like here she is, almost if not quite physically here, just on the other side. And mm-hmm. I think that also kind of matches up with this idea that you see in other accounts of her kind of fading away from his life towards the end. Like he can't see her anymore. Now he can't speak with her anymore. And now she's dead. Uh, and um, and maybe there's uh, there's some of that sprinkled in there as well. Um, and I also kind of like this whole, this idea of the screen, this kind of like thin veil that um, is separating him from this possibly, you know, resurrected spirit. Uh, it's such a slight barrier, right? Uh, as slight as the barrier between life and death may seem at times. And there's also something fitting in that ending to to tellings of the story in which he like finally can't have, he can't have it. He's like, I have to pull this out of the way and, and see her for, for real. And then when he looks behind the screen, what does he see? He sees his court magician uh, doing, you know, something with uh, shadow puppetry or statues. And, and now the illusion is completely destroyed. Yeah, but before the illusion is destroyed, just the idea that she is existing as a shadow on a silk screen, I don't know, it suggests something very uh, uh, delicate and fragile in a, in a kind of emotionally charged way about the memory of her. Yeah, yeah. So I feel like, you know, there's a there's a lot going on in this example, and, and perhaps it, it brings up some ideas about necromancy and what necromancy could be and what it's not that we can take with us into other examples here. Today's episode is brought to you by eBay. eBay Motors is here for the ride. Remember when you first saw the potential and then through some elbow grease, fresh installs, and a whole lot of love, you transformed a 100,000 miles in a body full of rust into a drive that's all your own. Look to your left. Look to your right. It's official. No one's got a ride like this. There's nothing else that sounds like, feels like, or looks like the set of wheels in your garage. 
With over 122 million parts, you can make sure your number one ride or die stays running smoothly so there's no limit to how far you can take it. Brake kits, turbochargers, engines, exhaust kits, roof racks, LED headlights, bumpers, whatever your baby needs, eBay Motors has it. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, it's guaranteed to fit your ride the first time, every time, or your money back. Plus, at these prices, well, you're burning rubber, not cash. Keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only. Exclusions apply. Xfinity has free premium networks for everyone this month, no matter what kind of entertainment you love. Addicted to true crime? Catch killer cases and more spine-tingling shows on A&E Crime Central. Crave adventure? Explore Asian action movies on Hayah. Searching for something extreme? Check out skating, snowboarding, and more on Fuel TV Plus, the global home of action sports. And find crowd-pleasing bops on iHeartRadio's Hit Nation playlist. There's new free shows and movies to love every week. Say free this week in your Xfinity voice remote. Are you looking for the perfect move-in ready home this spring season? Now's the time to buy at Fisher Homes. For a limited time only, enjoy below market interest rates starting at 5.375% APR, 6.139% APR. With these exclusive lower rates, you can save hundreds on a move-in ready home and start enjoying the benefits of home ownership even faster. Schedule your personal tour with one of our new home specialists at fisherhomes.com and make this spring the season you find your perfect home sweet home. Financing provided by Victory Mortgage, LLC, NMLS 461249, Equal Housing Lender. All right, Rob, are you ready to talk to some ghosts in ancient Mesopotamia? Oh, yes. So we're going to look at evidence for necromancy in the ancient land between the rivers. This would be uh, uh, Mesopotamia refers to the civilizations based on the river system of the Tigris and Euphrates. So mostly centered in what is modern day Iraq. And these civilizations would include but not be limited to the Sumerians, the Assyrians and the Babylonians. Now, the uh, main source I was looking at here is an article from 1983 by Irving L. Finkel called Necromancy in Ancient Mesopotamia, published in a journal called uh, Archive für Orientforschung. And this author, Irving Finkel, is a British Assyriologist and language scholar affiliated with the British Museum. It seems like he specializes in cuneiform inscriptions, but uh, he also seems to have a, a range of interests, including everything from Mesopotamian ghosts and magic to ancient board games like the Royal Game of Ur, which I think we uh, I think we discussed his work in particular in our invention series on board games. Yes, yes, I remember that episode. So I was looking for some general information about uh, Finkel and his background, and I found an absolutely delightful video interview with Finkel from about five years ago that seems to be part of a series the British Museum does called Curator's Corner. And this video is called Mesopotamian Ghostbusting with Irving Finkel. Uh, it's on topic, and I found it very interesting. So I thought I'd go ahead and summarize this before getting back into the paper. In this interview... Finkel talks about some of his best guesses as to what ancient Mesopotamians broadly believed about ghosts, the dead, and the undead based on literary and archaeological evidence available to us. Uh, so to be clear, I think this involves some speculation, but it is well-informed speculation. And also our same caveat from earlier, uh, you know, not everybody believed the same thing in certain times and places in history. So you can only talk about what seems to be common based on the sources we have. 
So, Finkel says, in ancient Mesopotamia, there was widespread belief that when someone died, it was very important that they were given a proper burial in the earth, with specified rituals to seal the grave. In Finkel's words, quote, so they were jolly well locked in and couldn't come back mm -hmm. to cause trouble. Uh, so people who, for whatever reason, do not receive a proper burial and do not receive the correct rituals uh, observed at their burial would be expected to come back from beyond the grave and haunt the living. Uh, and some examples given here would be people who die on the battlefield or people who die out in the wilderness alone, people who just vanish and are assumed dead. And he also mentions people who die in childbirth, uh, which I thought was an interesting example because I'm not sure in this case what would prevent someone uh, who dies in childbirth from receiving a proper burial. Hmm. But I thought that was interesting. And this comes back to something that uh, we've discussed a little bit on the show before, but I am frequently struck by the belief in what seems like many ancient cultures that it is extremely important to receive a proper burial or at least proper funeral rites according to your local customs. And I don't I don't know that it's always because of the kind of ghost security concerns that Finkel is going to raise with respect to ancient Mesopotamia, but it really does seem like lots of ancient peoples that we read about seem truly horrified by the idea of dying without receiving the appropriate funerary customs or not or uh, without having their body dealt with in the way that their their culture deems is uh, is proper. And it, it's not that I think people today just don't care at all what happens to their bodies after death. We care somewhat, but I sense uh, way less sensitivity to this on average in, in American culture today than is implied in many ancient sources from different cultures around the world. And I don't know exactly what to make of that, but it seems significant to me. I, I feel like I would like to understand more about it. Yeah, I mean, well, we've, we, we've distanced ourselves from death and physical death. Uh, so much. And, you know, we have an entire industry obviously built up around it. Uh, so on one level, it's kind of like we can just leave it to the professionals. Mm -hmm. um, we, we can choose from like the, the menu items of what we can and can't do with, with our, or have done with our remains. And yeah, I think for a lot of us too, like the actual uh, form that takes is less connected to our ideas of like what happens to us or of us beyond our body after death. Mm-hmm be the answer, you know, nothing or a whole lot, uh, it, it's, it's, I think, oftentimes thought to be rather disconnected uh, from the physical. There's an interesting uh, other example of a connection between the belief in what happens to your sort of soul or spirit in the afterlife and what happens to your physical body in a text that I'm going to get into uh, in a bit. But to come back to what Finkel talks about in this interview, he says, you know, as best we can tell from our sources, Everybody we know of in ancient Mesopotamia believed in ghosts. There is no evidence uh, of anyone saying that ghosts don't exist or you don't have to worry about them. Seems like it was just taken for granted that ghosts existed and were part of life. However, and I thought this point was really interesting, Finkel says that um, it is not universal that people regarded ghosts with fear or terror. People were not always necessarily frightened of them. Instead, he says, the more common attitude seems to be one of sympathy for ghosts. Kind of like if there is a ghost haunting you, that is a problem, but it's not 
something that is is terrifying, uh, at least not necessarily. It could be in some circumstances. So a ghost is somebody, usually a family member of yours, who is like now having a hard time after death. It's almost like somebody in your family has a disease or something. And because of their condition, they are unable to find rest in the underworld. They can't settle down in the netherworld and they need the help of the living. Um, so while, while they may not be frightening, they are in trouble and they often cause trouble. All right. So that second part is very familiar with any, to anyone who's ever seen a TV show that has an episode about a ghost. How, how do you deal with that ghost? You got to like do that thing that makes them go away, that makes them content and lets them move on. But, uh, but the first part about it, like it not being a, a frightful scenario, but more of a sympathetic scenario you know, it it, it kind of makes me think again, it's like, what happens when there is not room for a particular type of supernatural belief or paranormal experience within a given, um, like, rule system or worldview? For instance, if your, say, religious worldview is like, hey, there are no such thing as ghosts. Uh, those don't exist. Well, then when something makes you think about ghosts or or or, um, or raises the specter of ghosts, or you have some sort of a hallucination experience that is interpreted as ghosts, well, then that power structure cannot help you because they're like, well, out of our hands because we already told you that stuff's not real. Yeah. Um, and then likewise, I think if you, with a certain, um, you know, certain scientific positions you could take on everything, you know, it's like you don't believe in the supernatural. And if then if, if something like this were to present itself, then suddenly it seems may se- it may seem like science can't help you. Um, I think we would argue something different. You know, we discussed that before. There are various uh, thoroughly logical, rational, scientific ex- explanations for various supernatural experiences. But I can imagine the attitude of being like, well, something has now occurred and it is outside the framework that is supporting me. Therefore, I am afraid. Yes, I think that is very interesting. And I think that might be a, a good explanation for this difference, for why our primary emotional reaction to ghosts in the modern world or even in, I don't know, say like medieval Christian Europe would be fear. Hmm. Just like it doesn't fit as a reality within your orthodoxy. Yeah. And so anyway, in the context of ancient Mesopotamia, Finkel says there were people we know of who specialized in magic and rituals designed to appease wandering ghosts and send them back to their rightful place among the dead, send them back to the netherworld where they belong. And uh, I think normally in the in the literature, these would be referred to as exorcists, which, uh, again, can be confusing because of like the, the Christian Catholic context of an exorcist being somebody who like casts out demons from a person who is demon possessed and in in the case it's used in these uh, academic works it would just be referred to it's somebody whose job it is to like get the ghost out of the place it's not supposed to be and help it get back to where it is supposed to be yeah and he describes one particular example based on a tablet in the British Museum's collection. Uh, and this is pretty interesting. He says this tablet depicts a portly woman walking in profile, holding a male figure by a lead, which I think uh, attaches around the male figure's neck. And Finkel says he believes that the woman shown in this illustration is a ghost, probably the ghost of someone's great aunt who for some reason is wandering the world of the living and causing trouble. And the exorcist called to deal with this problem decides that what this ghost needs is a lover. 
So the Exorcist makes one clay model of the ghost woman and another clay model that is a sexy man, a young, muscular, handsome man with a large beard. And these two clay effigies are buried together in a pit with an assortment of grave goods. And then the idea is that this burial would allow the ghost to settle down into the underworld and stop causing distress for the living. Hmm, that's that's interesting. Uh, it reminds me a little bit of uh, the the topic of of ghost marriage in Chinese tradition that we, I think Christian and I did an episode on years and years back. But uh, you know, basically involves sort of a similar principle, like something is out of whack. There's a structural incompleteness uh, that is involved with the family unit, and it needs to be supernaturally and or symbolically fixed in order for these you know, now ancestors to completely pass on and sort of be properly organized in, you know, the afterlife or what have you. Right. I, I think that's a good comparison. And uh, but to come back to the illustration on the tablet, it, uh, he says it seems to show this ghost woman holding on to, I guess, her new lover by this like lead. So there's like no chance he gets away. They're together forever. <laughs> Now, uh, coming back to this idea from a minute ago that, that ghosts were not necessarily thought of as frightening in ancient Mesopotamia, Finkel says that there were some ghosts who were, who actually were frightening and dangerous. And he offers his opinion that these were probably understood to be the ghosts of people who were themselves frightening and dangerous when they were alive. So, you know, regular person with a proper bur- uh, with, without proper burial means a, you know, a sort of a sympathetic but troublesome ghost, somebody, a problem you need to deal with or a, a ghost you need to help, but not necessarily scary. Whereas a wicked person without a proper burial, that could be a scary ghost. Okay, makes sense. And he says these malevolent ghosts were thought to slip in through a person's ear while the victim was asleep. And uh, if the ghost gets in through your ear canal, it could bring on extreme headaches like migraines or it could even cause madness. And Finkel describes a couple of other types of effigies that would be crafted by ancient Mesopotamian exorcists in order to drive away malevolent ghosts. First, there's a kind of king figure who would be placed near a bed to project authority and and general warding magic. And then second would be a model of a, a vizier figure that would be placed on top of a pole in a way that it could rotate around the pole, like a kind of spin around it like a propeller. And this would, he suggests, sort of fan the air around and drive spirits away. Okay. And finally, he makes the point that these elaborate rituals with like paid exorcists were these almost certainly would have been the things that were available to the elite, to the richest people in society. And we have way less insight, maybe no insight really, into how regular people dealt with ghosts if they did at all. And then he sort of humorously suggests that regular people people might not have had time to see ghosts. <laughs> or if they did, perhaps they just sort of like waved at them and went about their business. But we don't really know. Uh, but I do think that's kind of f- funny to imagine that like... Uh, I don't know if this is true, but I, I mean, I wonder if like ghosts are more likely to be a problem that you're dealing with if you have excess like uh, time and leisure and, and riches and stuff. Maybe. I, I, I could see that argument. But uh, yeah, it also seems kind of to his point as well. Equally, it's possible that uh, the, the people 
uh, regular people had their own traditions and their own experts, uh, but we just have no surviving mention of them. Today's episode is brought to you by eBay. eBay Motors is here for the ride. Remember when you first saw the potential? And then, through some elbow grease, fresh installs, and a whole lot of love, you transformed 100,000 miles in a body full of rust into a drive that's all your own. Look to your left. Look to your right. It's official. No one's got a ride like this. There's nothing else that sounds like, feels like, or looks like the set of wheels in your garage. With over 122 million parts, you can make sure your number one ride or die stays running smoothly so there's no limit to how far you can take it. Brake kits, turbochargers, engines, exhaust kits, roof racks, LED headlights, bumpers, whatever your baby needs, eBay Motors has it. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, it's guaranteed to fit your ride the first time, every time, or your money back. Plus, at these prices, well, you're burning rubber, not cash. Keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only. Exclusions apply. Xfinity has free premium networks for everyone this month, no matter what kind of entertainment you love. Addicted to true crime? Catch killer cases and more spine-tingling shows on A&E Crime Central. Crave adventure? Explore Asian action movies on Hayah. Searching for something extreme? Check out skating, snowboarding, and more on Fuel TV Plus, the global home of action sports. And find crowd-pleasing bops on iHeartRadio's Hit Nation playlist. There's new free shows and movies to love every week. Say free this week in your Xfinity voice remote. Are you looking for the perfect move-in ready home this spring season? Now's the time to buy at Fisher Homes. For a limited time only, enjoy below market interest rates starting at 5.375% APR, 6.139% APR. With these exclusive lower rates, you can save hundreds on a move-in ready home and start enjoying the benefits of home ownership even faster. Schedule your personal tour with one of our new home specialists at fisherhomes.com and make this spring the season you find your perfect home sweet home. Financing provided by Victory Mortgage, LLC, NMLS 461249, Equal Housing Lender. Now, to come back to Finkel's 1983 paper on necromancy in ancient Mesopotamia, all of that I was just talking about was uh, ghost-busting or exorcism. Back mm-hmm. to necromancy specifically, I want to note quickly that this article I'm talking about, I think it was very interesting, so I do want to talk about it, but it was not written for a popular audience. This is for Mesopotamian specialists, and several parts kind of assume familiarity with ancient languages, which I certainly do not have. I think I was able to make sense of all the main points by doing some secondary research, but uh, but but please just know I'm doing my best here. I'm, I'm outside my uh, area of expertise. So uh, he starts off this paper by saying, you know, our sources from ancient Mesopotamia don't contain a lot of references to necromancy, uh, but there is some evidence of its practice. And uh, here he defines necromancy as, quote, the delicate art of summoning the spirits of the dead in order to learn the future from them. So this is the the definition you'll find more often in academic works, not about, you know, summoning skeleton soldiers or something, but again, for divination purposes. He specifically says to learn the future, but I think some of the examples he uh, mentions are not really so much about the future. They're just more generally the getting information thing. And so Finkel writes that uh, some of the clearest evidence of necromancy is actually lexical, meaning related to vocabulary. 
there are these ancient cuneiform texts from Mesopotamia known as lexical lists, and they go way back. There are tons of these tablets uh, you, you can find in the, in the archaeological record. There are uh, you know, lots of them to, to, to translate and interpret, and they are essentially ancient glossaries that just list collections of words, often with translations of the, the terms between different languages. And these could include lists of names or lists of gods or lists of uh, different categories of natural objects like lists of plants or lists of birds or simply lists of nouns or words. And one of the most famous cuneiform lexical text traditions is the professions list known as Lu. And so in this list, it names a bunch of jobs, jobs people can have there. And uh, so there are words for professions in this list that we can tell refer to necromancers because of the way the words are constructed. And this is one of those sections where because this is for specialists, I wasn't able to tell exactly what the terms here cash out to in English. But I think what this means is there are sort of listed professions that that are called something like dead spirit raiser or something. Hmm. And Finkel says there are male and female versions of these professional names. But unfortunately, we don't have connected literary texts that show how these terms were used. However, uh, Finkel says there are several passages in uh, Mesopotamian texts that were already widely known at the time this paper was published, which do describe forms of necromancy in practice. And one of the most interesting ones is found in the Sumerian narrative known as Gilgamesh, Enkidu, and the Netherworld. Mm, good old Gilgamesh. Yes. Now, um, this is a story of the two characters, Gilgamesh and Enkidu, who are the heroes of the famous Gilgamesh epic. You know, they they have a that I mean, that's a buddy cop story for you. You know, they uh, they uh, they go slay the demon Humbaba together in the cedar forest and they get up to all kinds of mischief. But then tragically, Enkidu dies and then that that sends Gilgamesh on his quest for immortality. I think that uh, Gilgamesh Enkidu in the netherworld is, from what I understand, best thought of as a separate story that is out of continuity with the rest of the Gilgamesh epic, even though it is sometimes tacked on at the end of, of the larger epic as a kind of discontinuous chapter. Okay. Because like Enkidu dies earlier in the story and then here he is suddenly alive again at the beginning of, of this story. Uh, but here are the broad strokes of Gilgamesh, Enkidu, and the Netherworld. Uh, so Gilgamesh's stuff keeps falling into the underworld. Like he has this stuff called um I don't know exactly what these possessions of Gilgamesh's are supposed to be. There's one thing called an elag written in English E L L A G that like oh it fell into the underworld. Uh you know, so his his stuff is like tumbling out of this world into the infamous house of dust where the dead go to dwell. And so Gilgamesh's friend and or servant in Kidu offers to go into the underworld to get his stuff back for him. Unfortunately, once he goes down there, he breaks all the rules and is thus not allowed to return to the world of the living. Now he is dead. And in the version that Finkel cites, there is a scene in which a demon named Nergal conjures up the ghost of Enkidu at Gilgamesh's bidding. And the ghost of Enkidu is said to rise up through a hole or a crack in the ground like the wind in order to have a conversation with Gilgamesh about what the underworld is like. 
Now, I went looking for a full translation of this story uh, so I, I could zero in on a few sections. The The one version of this text that I found online, which uh, I should note has a few small differences from exactly what Finkel describes, was on an Oxford-hosted website called the Electronic Text Corpus of Sumerian Literature. Uh, so I want to look at a few different things. Uh, first of all, the list of things that Gilgamesh tells Enkidu not to do in order to survive his trip to the netherworld. There's like a, uh, oh, I don't know, like, the you know, the rules and how to survive a slasher movie. Enkidu mm -hmm. gets one of those for the netherworld. So he says, you're definitely not supposed to wear clean garments because if you wear clean garments, they're going to know you're not dead. You're not one of them. They'll, uh, they'll get really mad. You should not anoint yourself with fine oil from a bowl because then they will surround you because they will smell that you smell nice and you're not supposed to smell nice down there. Very sensible. Exactly, yes. Uh, he says, don't start hurling throw sticks in the netherworld. <laughs> Those struck down by the throw sticks are going to get mad at you and surround you. Okay, also sensible. He says, don't hold a Cornell wood stick in your hand. Uh, he says that the spirits will feel insulted by this for some reason. I, I don't know what that means. But good advice, you wouldn't think of it, and therefore it's even more important that you be warned. <laughs> exactly. It says, you shouldn't put sandals on your feet. Uh, you should not shout in the netherworld. Uh, I guess maybe Enkidu's wife had died. He says, you should neither kiss nor hit your wife. And then... Okay. Enkidu's child had died, and you said you should neither kiss nor hit your child. Okay. So basically, like, you're supposed to be like these shades of the dead. You're not showing any emotion. You're not, you know, you're not you're either good or bad. Like, you're doing nothing but just being there, hanging out like a shade. Yeah, and I guess getting the Elag and the other stuff back uh, yeah. to bring that back. Uh, but Enkidu fails. He does literally everything Gilgamesh warns him not to do in the underworld, every single one of the things. And he is seized and trapped there forever. Ooh, that went south. So in this version I was reading, Gilgamesh gets somebody, it's not the demon Nergal in this version, he gets somebody named Utu to open a hole in the underworld to allow Enkidu to come up and share information with him. And so I want to describe this scene uh, where Enkidu's ghost is called up. Uh, uh, it reads as follows. They hugged and kissed. They wearied each other with questions. Did you see the order of the netherworld? If only you would tell me, my friend. If only you would tell me. And then Enkidu responds, if I tell you the order of the netherworld, sit down and weep. And uh, Enkidu tells him that the netherworld is like a garment infested with worms, and it is like a crevice filled with dust. And then they end up talking uh, at length about the fates of the dead. So there are all these different things that sort of reflect, I guess, ancient Mesopotamian views about what the good life is. Like, it, it seems that Enkidu thinks the dead who have a lot of heirs are pretty happy, and the ones that have fewer heirs are unhappy. Uh, but then a bunch of other different kinds of fates people can have are described. Um, they say, for example, did you see the spirit of him who has no funerary offerings? Enkidu says, I saw him. Gilgamesh says, how does he fare? Enkidu says he eats the scraps and the crumbs tossed out in the street. Hmm. And again, uh, bad things when funeral rites are not observed. But I wondered about that. Does he mean the scraps and crumbs tossed out in the street in the netherworld or on earth in the cities of the living? I took it maybe more to be the second. Mm, yeah, I mean, I could see it going either way. I mean, basically, you did not symbolically offer food to them. And so they have no sustenance in the afterlife. 
But then there's one thing here that uh, has some interesting metaphysical information. Uh, Gilgamesh says, uh, did you see him who was set on fire? And Enkidu says, I did not see him. His spirit is not about. His smoke went up to the sky. Hmm. Ooh, so the person who is burned is not in the netherworld at all. They go wherever their smoke goes, up in the sky. What happens to them there? It kind of sounds like they end up in the wrong place. It's like, it it seems to be the message, like, you don't go cremating the dead, because then how are they going to get to this wonderful, (laughs) wonderful afterlife that is being presented here? I mean, to be clear, it seems okay for people who had a bunch of heirs. Mm-hmm. He says they uh, they are like gods. They sit in judgment of everyone else. But anyway, I, I thought this was interesting because this is depicting an example of necromancy. I think that does meet the strict definition, like Gilgamesh is trying to get hidden information, but it's not so much like uh, personal future fortune telling type stuff. Instead, he is using this consultation with the dead to get information about what happens to different people after they die. Yeah, and also sort of reconnect with an old friend. Like, so, hey, where, where are you living these days? Yeah. Uh, afterlife. Well, what's it, what's it like? Well, it's ashy. It's, <laughs> it's, it's like dust in a crevice, you know? Yeah. That's what you should say next time you reconnect with an old friend. Well, you yeah. know, garment, garment eaten by worms, a crevice yeah. full of dust. <laughs> But anyway, coming back to Finkel's paper, so he mentions a couple of other sources uh, pre-existing at the time of this paper that that mention necromancy, uh, or at least potentially mention it in a more prosaic context. One is an old Assyrian letter from Kultepe, which contains uh, the lines, quote, Here we asked the female oracle givers, the female diviners and the spirits, colon, Assur repeatedly upbraids you. Uh, And so I interpret this to be a a reference to a a person who consults the spirits of the dead to get information. Possibly the information they're getting is about the fact that the god Assur, who is like a a god of Assyria, is angry with someone. Okay, they have inside information. Another is also a letter, this one Neo-Assyrian, which exists in damaged form and has been interpreted and translated different ways. One of those interpretations implies that necromancers have asked the spirits to predict whether a certain uh, person will become a king, but this interpretation of the letter is not certain. But anyway, after these examples, Finkel goes on to describe two previously unpublished Babylonian tablets from the first millennium BCE held by the British Museum that he says deal in totally unambiguous terms with necromancy. And boy, these are a trip. Are you ready? I'm ready. The first one is called BM 36703. It is a late Babylonian text, and it includes instructions for a necromantic ritual. It says, you call upon the ghost and he will answer you. And then there is an incantation where the necromancer says, who are you? Who are you? It then lists the names of known malevolent spirits and demons that we know are supposed to be uh, evil spirits and demons because they appear in other texts about exorcism. And uh, Finkel says that this part of the ritual seems to be a kind of safety precaution, trying to protect against the possibility that in summoning the dead for divination, you accidentally summon a vicious evil monster instead. It's like a security step to prevent you dialing the wrong number and accidentally calling Freddy Krueger or whatever. 
Oh, wow. Yeah. And we'll, we'll eventually see reverberations of this on up into like medieval Christian traditions, you know, again, where it's more like you will always get a wrong number because this number cannot possibly connect to who you want to reach. Right. But that's not the context here. They think you can dial the right number. You just got to be careful. You got to do the right mm-hmm. incantations and, and warding magic. Now, next in this tablet, there's a part that is damaged, but it appears based on context to be steps for what to do if the ritual doesn't work. Uh, I do wish we could know what it said here. Then it goes on to the ritual itself. Here I'm going to read from Finkel, and the the context is um, that this is an Akkadian incantation that is addressed to the god Shamash, and it is asking for the help of the god Shamash to summon a ghost, uh, literally, of the darkness. And uh, so then uh, reading from Finkel now, quote, This ghost, once brought up from its place of rest, is then supposed to enter into a skull placed there for that purpose. The reciter of the incantation says, quote, I call upon you, O skull of skulls, may he who is within the skull answer me. Then there follows, in lines 7 to 10, a magical ritual that involves an oily preparation of animal parts being mixed up and left to stand overnight. Mm. Do you want to know what is in this necromancer cocktail, Rob? Oh, I suppose we should know. Okay, so uh, it says you crush up a male and female partridge, dust from a crossroads, dust of a jumping cricket of the steppe, and an upturned potsherd from a crossroads in Puru oil. Then you mix all that together, you leave it to stand overnight, and uh, in the morning you will... uh, Then there are a number of things you can actually do. So Finkel goes on to explain that you either use this mixture to anoint the skull itself or the ghost, and I'm not sure exactly how you anoint the ghost with it, and then... Or the and then it's a it's a word here that's represented as N A M and uh, I think the meaning of that is ambiguous. Finkel says it might refer to it might be referring to someone called the man, but it, it's unclear in in the context of the tablet who this would refer to, um, unless maybe he says it means like a figurine of the dead person who who you're trying to summon, like uh, like we saw with the other with ritual. That would make sense. And then to pick up again, reading from uh, Finkel's description of the ritual, quote, At this point, you call upon him and he will answer you. In the context, the word uh, elimu no doubt refers to a representation of the ghost. And the ritual would have the same effect whether applied to this representation, to the nam, or to the skull itself. It's not quite certain whether all three elements were necessary. The idea, however, is quite clear. It is quite appropriately Shamash who has the power and authority to bring up a ghost from the underworld, and the whole operation is put under his auspices. Somehow the ghost will enter into the skull and answer the questions put to him. I love that. Oh, skull of skulls indeed. Okay, so that's the first tablet. There's a second tablet, another previously unknown text uh, uh, being published, I guess, at the time of this article, that is known as K2779, which is a Neo-Babylonian tablet which contains some of the same material as the previous text, but also some original stuff. And this text, interestingly, also contains what appear to be security precautions. For example, there is a ritual and incantation that is to, quote, avert the evil in the crying of the ghost uh, or the Mm -hmm. crying of 
of a ghost, sorry. And uh, Finkel notes from, from the contemporary texts that it was believed that personal contact with a ghost usually led to really bad consequences for a living person, often death. So if you are a necromancer, you could be doing something really dangerous. You are attempting personal contact with a ghost in order to get privileged information, but this contact comes with a high likelihood of a death curse. So you have to employ protective magic to counteract that danger. Now, I was kind of wondering how to square this with Finkel's own characterization that, that was from an interview decades later uh, of ghosts not for the most part incurring a reaction of fear in the ancient Mesopotamians, but rather of kind of like sympathy. I don't know exactly how to square that, but it makes me wonder if maybe most of the ghost encounters people thought they were having weren't actually like personal face-to-face -face contact or talking to a ghost or hearing the cry of a ghost, but more like indirect indications that a spirit is restless and wandering or seeing what appears to be evidence of a dead family member from afar. I, I don't know, but I wonder. Mm, yeah, kind of, it reminds me of some of these traditions involving like the evil eye, uh, you know, the idea that it is out there, it is aware, um, but it's not necessarily honing in on you unless you give it reason to. And so, you know, similarly, you could, you could live in a world of ghosts, but have you done anything personally to attract the ghost or to encourage the ghost? Well, then you're probably fine. Finkel also says it's notable that uh, K2779 is a, is a type of text called a uh, nemburbi, the primary purpose of which is describing ways to avert evil and unexplained phenomena. So it's kind of surprising that rituals for intentionally summoning up a ghost and prying information out of it under the auspices of uh, Shamash or whoever would be included because the rest of the text is basically like a ghost-busting manual. It is how to keep hmm. ghosts, demons, and any other weirdness away from you. Hmm. Yeah, it raises all sorts of questions about like what is sort of what is the day-to-day -day activity in the the ghost busting and necromancer um, professional world of, of this time period. Okay, but I think I promised you there was another necromancer cocktail coming. This one is from uh, let's see. Well, I think this actually is derived from both uh, both texts, and this is a concoction you would put together that is part of an incantation to enable a man to see a ghost. Hmm. So the text says, you crush moldy wood, fresh leaves of Euphrates poplar in water, oil, beer, and wine. You dry, crush, and sieve snake tallow, lion tallow, crab tallow, white honey, a frog that lives among the pebbles, hair of a dog, hair of a cat, hair of a fox, bristle of a chameleon, and bristle of a red lizard, claws of a frog, end of intestines of a frog, the left wing of a grasshopper, and marrow from the long bone of a goose. Oh, wow. You mix all this in wine, water, and milk with Amhara plant, and then you recite the incantation three times, and you anoint your eyes with it, and you will see the ghost, and he will speak with you. You can look at the ghost. He will talk with you. And yes, I said that twice because the text says it twice. <laughs> so any mixologists out there who want to take these as an inspiration for a Halloween-themed drink, I don't know how exactly you make a, uh, a safe version of that, but uh, take, it, take it as an inspiration. You know, it's a challenge. <laughs> Ooh, yeah, don't actually do that. But 
but yeah, so I do love instructions like this for uh, for magic potions or homunculi or whatever you happen to be concocting uh, in olden times. Um, the, the moldy wood gave me pause. Like it makes me, it reminds me of um, other examples, I believe from Chinese traditions, uh, where uh, the idea that if you had a, like a rotten broom handle, it might have uh, some sort of ghostly possession about it. Uh, and there might be some, even something going on uh, with uh, illuminated microorganisms um, in the soft wood, you know? Oh, yes. Yeah. It might make it kind of glow in the dark. Yeah. But I mean, as for like the hair of the cat and the dog and so forth, I mean, I don't know. I imagine you're just getting into symbolic territory at that point. Once you've used your end of intestines of a frog in this, though, what do you do with the start of intestines of the frog you've got left over? Well, you got to save that for later. That's another recipe, right? Yeah. Well, this this has uh, been fascinating. Uh, you know, snapshots into worlds where necromancy, worlds and places and particular places where necromancy is... Uh, is more common necromancy of one form or the other, and in some cases there are there are rules, there are laws in place, um, spelling out exactly how one a, one professional is supposed to carry all of this out. Again, I do think it's interesting and significant that both of these instruction manuals for for necromancers uh, have have these safety precautions. Like you've got to go through, you've got to like put on the safety goggles and stuff uh, in mm-hmm. in a magical metaphorical sense. And I, I wonder if that's always true about necromancy everywhere, or is there anywhere where it's just kind of more like uh, loosely regulated, fly by the seat of your pants, nothing to worry about kind of stuff. Yeah, I don't know. There are different ways to slice it, right? Because on one hand, if you're looking at it like completely skeptically, you can say, well, of course, a professional necromancer is going to outline the extreme risks that they are taking uh, when they carry out their necromantic acts. You don't want it's not necromancy for the masses. It's necromancy for me. uh, And you're going to pay me to do it. Um, Therefore, there need to be certain skills involved that that ordinary people are not going to attempt to do. That's a good point. Yeah, I wonder if th- this is in some way justifying of economic incentives. Yeah, but then on the other hand, I mean, just you, magic systems in general, other models of the afterlife in general, you see in various cultures, like it is often a realm in which there are various dangers and there are rules that need to be followed uh, to the letter if you were to survive uh, like the journey or survive, you know, the, uh, the dipping into this world a little bit to gain knowledge and so forth. You want to talk about necromancy some more on Tuesday? Yeah, yeah, I think we have a lot more we can we can chat about. So join us on Tuesday as we come back for uh, our second helping of necromancy. Um, I'm not. I think we'll get into Greek necromancy a little bit. I'm not sure what else we'll get into, but uh, I'm sure it will be a good seasonal time, and we'll be we'll definitely be in October at that point. All right, we're going to remind you once more that Stuff to Blow Your Mind is primarily a science podcast, but, you know, we do get into um, other topics like this one, uh, especially during the month of October, obviously. We get into some, uh, uh, some, some Halloween content for sure. So stay with us this entire month of October as we explore um, other topics of, of a spooky nature. Uh, also join us for our Weird House Cinema episodes on Fridays. Weird House Cinema is our time to set aside most serious concerns and just talk about a weird film. And you know we're going to be watching some horror movies this month, so you can watch along with us or you can just t- tune in and listen to our discussions of these films if you're a little too uh, creeped out to view them for yourself. And then on Mondays we do Listener Mail, and on Wednesdays we do a short-form Monster Fact or Artifact. Huge thanks to our excellent audio producer, J.J. Posway. If you would like 
like to get in touch with us with feedback on this episode or any other to suggest a topic for the future or just to say hello, you can email us at contact at stufftoblowyourmind.com. Stuff to Blow Your Mind is a production of iHeartRadio. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows. Today's episode is brought to you by Visible. The future of wireless is here, and it's transparent. Switch to Visible, the wireless company that makes wireless visible. Get a one-line plan with unlimited 5G data powered by Verizon, just $25 a month, every month, taxes and fees included. No hidden fees, no surprises, no, really. What are you waiting for? Get with the times and switch to Visible at Visible.com. Monthly rate on the Visible plan for data management practices and additional terms, visit Visible.com. There are some things that are too good to keep a secret. Like how your Amex Platinum card helps you have the perfect trip. I'd like to check into the Centurion Lounge. Or how it seems like you always get those hard-to-snag tables. Ooh, yum. And how you get the most out of select can't-miss events. With access to the Centurion Lounge, Resi Priority Notified, and Amex card member benefits at select events, you'll have to share. That's the powerful backing of American Express. Terms apply. Learn more at americanexpress.com slash with Amex. Are you looking for the perfect move-in ready home this spring season? Now's the time to buy at Fisher Homes. For a limited time only, enjoy below market interest rates starting at 5.375% APR, 6.139% APR. With these exclusive lower rates, you can save hundreds on a move-in ready home and start enjoying the benefits of home ownership even faster. Schedule your personal tour with one of our new home specialists at fisherhomes.com and make this spring the season you find your perfect home sweet home. Financing provided by Victory Mortgage, LLC, NMLS 461249, Equal Housing Lender.